welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. If you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 4, please. And uh, we are... We have rounded the corner on Eat This Book, which is the series we're in. We started with Israel at the beginning and followed them through the Exodus and the prophets and the kings and the judges and the 400 years of silence and on to Jesus, which is where we are now. Last week, we looked at the baptism of John, uh, which is an interesting little story, uh, really interesting, actually. Uh, we found the Spirit of God working outside of in, outside of the preconceived ideas as to where God would be. And we found Mark really presenting Jesus as true Israel, right? who takes upon himself the identity and the vocation or the job of Israel as the long-awaited Messiah that Israel was waiting for and the prophets told of. And so we're going to look again at Mark's gospel and the story of Jesus calming the sea. Um, one, because I don't know if you know this, but the kids are following along with us, so they do the same story that we typically do on a Sunday morning. But uh, but two, this is a really interesting spot in the Gospels for the disciples. Um, you know, they meet Jesus, they start following Jesus, and then we find these uh, multiple occasions, these opportunities for them to step in to what Jesus is doing, right? This recreation of God's people, and he's constantly inviting them to do that. And this is one of those moments. So um, if you would, Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41, say this. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. They were also, or there were also others with him, other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples, sorry, just found one of my wife's hair stuck in my, another one. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I good? Okay. I live with four women. <coughs> Stop. Don't do that. This is the word of God here, Micah. Get with it. He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. <coughs> then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified, and they asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. God, as we look at this story and we open <coughs> ourselves up to your revealed self in the word, uh, would you meet us here? Would you open our eyes and our ears to be able to see and hear what you'd have for us, God? And I pray that whatever I bring to this, that you would take it and make it so much more than uh, any of us are able to. That these words would become life-giving. That they would become in some way connected to you and your spirit and what you're doing in this community. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Okay. So the disciples uh, are with Jesus. They're hanging out with him. And he's like, hey, hop in the boat. And uh, so they get in the boat. And he says, let's go over to the other side. And the wind comes up and the waves come and water comes in the boat. And they start to sink. And they're like, oh my gosh, Jesus, why are, we, why are you asleep? Are you going to save us? And then Jesus is like, shh, to the, to the storm in the water. <laughs> the water dies down and they're safe, Right? Do you ever wonder what that actually would have been like? I mean, I've read this story, I don't know, let's call it conservatively 25 times in my life, right? I'm 35, I've been a part of churches all my life, I went to seminary, 
And we read these stories, and I think that's sometimes how we hear it, right? It's like, yeah, they got in the boat, Jesus said, God to the storm, and this and that. But can you imagine what that would have been like? These guys were, they were fishermen, most of them, so they were not, this is not their first rodeo. Right? They've been out in a boat before. The, the Sea of Galilee is one that it, it's a, it, a, a, a storm can come up and make the place a, a mess very quickly from what I've heard. I'm actually, I get to go there this fall. I'm super excited about that. Um, so I'll tell you if it's true. I'll report back if that's actually true, whether or not the Sea of Galilee is like that. But, uh, the, the, so not the first rodeo the water's coming over the boat and they are starting to sink and they think that they're going to die have you ever been in a boat that's taking on water before has anybody ever done that yeah a couple of you so I, I'm a fisherman and I like to fish the river right down here in fact a couple years ago I had just bought a new boat uh, and I was you know uh, it was new to me um, and I launched it right over here in Lilydale. spring water temperature you know maybe 40-ish could kill you Okay, very quickly. So I launched the boat, and you have to remember, I grew up with five boys. My dad took us fishing all the time, and my dad was notorious for leaving the drain plug out. Do you know what a drain plug is in a boat? The drain plug is a small, insignificant portion of the boat at the back. It's very significant. Um, that It's a plug that you can put in there, and so when you get out of the water, you can take the drain plug out, and it will drain whatever water you know has come over the side, or blah, blah, blah. So he would, he would like, we'd be going fishing, and dad would like back the boat in and launch it, and then he'd be like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh! The drag one, the drag one, the drag one. You just like start flipping out. Things would be flying across, needle-nose pliers, all kinds of things. And you yank the boat out and like put the drain plug back in. So I learned at a very young age, like you don't put the boat in without the drain plug. I've only done it once in Red Wing. Gosh, that was oh man, it's terrifying. So I launch my boat over here. The drain plug is in. It's all good. And I like motor down. I go all the way down to Holman Airport, right down in like past St. Paul. It's probably like a I don't know three, four, five mile boat ride. I get down there, I kill the motor, I start fishing, and I'm standing there, and I'm, you know, vertical jigging, which is just doing this. So I'm standing there, and all of a sudden I look down, and there's water around my feet. <laughs> I'm like, flashback to my dad, right? Oh my gosh, oh my God, what? I turn around, and there's water bubbling up through the vent in the floor of my boat, and it is like taking on water. It, like, I might die in this boat. So I'm out there, and I'm like flipping out, I, Got the motor started, and I ran it all the way back up to the to the launch, and I found out that as I was driving down, somehow the drain plug had come out of the boat. It must have hit something, and it dislodged it, and so I literally thought I was going to die in the Mississippi River. So I have a little bit of an appreciation for what it may have been like for these guys who think they're going to die in this boat. And, and uh, it's interesting when we read the text that... Uh, I, I guess I would encourage us to try to enter the story a little bit. Um, when I was uh, uh, in, so I graduated from college in 1999. I married my wife. I graduated in May. I married my wife, in, and I got my first job in June, and I married my wife in July. So any, all you youngsters out there, pay attention here. Uh, don't do that. It's not a good idea. Lots of big events all wrapped up, you know, like real close to one another. Not a good idea. So I worked at this church. I was a junior high youth pastor, like really large church, uh, like 2,000 people or something. This is the kind of church that hires you and says, like, you're the junior high professional. Like, get the job done. If you need us, call us, right? So I, I'm there, and I learned a lot about myself in that experience. I learned that I'm a people person. I really like people. 
I get energy off of people. They fill me up. And uh, this was the kind of church that you just kind of like put your nose down. And so after a while, I just started to burn out. Like you've only got so much to give. And can we just be honest and talk about junior hires for just a second? Okay, like an anomaly, like this bizarre age. And so I'm giving, giving, giving. And I found myself just absolutely fried at, about, at 18 months. And I could not give another drop of myself. And I remember, I remember vividly uh, like laid out over the foot of my bed, weeping, um, just thinking like this boat is taking on water, <laughs> right? And I am about to drown here. And uh, if you're familiar with David Crowder, one of his first album, there's a song called All That I Can Say. And it was like, I just sang that over and over and over and over and again. And I was like, God, this is all I have. Like, I can't do it anymore. And I found, I found that God met me in the midst of that. I found that God spoke to me in the midst of that crisis in my own life. And... Um, I share that story with you because I want to say that I don't think this text has anything to do with God calming the storms of our lives. See how I set you up right there? (laughs) I don't think this text has anything to do with God being the calmer of the storm in our lives. I want to suggest, and I want to resist the temptation that I think we often have when we come to a story like this in the Gospels where we think, well, God must be the calmer. The storm is our life, and Jesus calms the storm, and he's going to make it okay. I want to resist the temptation of that while God may in fact be awesome, and while God may in fact be one who may calm storms in our lives, I think when we come to the text like that and with those kinds of expectations, we often miss what the author is doing with the way that they're presenting the material. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but um, when we, we often come to the text, and I do this, I, I've been guilty of it uh, most of my life, but we come to the text with an expectation that we can kind of mine it, right? That, that this, we can mine the Bible and the scripture for truth and dogma and doctrine and things to believe about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And when we come to the text believing that all of scripture wants to teach us what to believe about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And I want to just critique that for just a second this morning and offer a different possibility. And the possibility is this, that um, it's not a very good idea to come to the Psalms and hope to find doctrine, because it's poetry, right? I just don't think that's a good idea. I would not recommend that to anybody. Like, read the Psalms, and these are all the things that you should believe about God. Because there's all kinds of stuff in the Psalms, right, where David's asking God to bash babies on rocks. I mean, what's the theology there? The point I'm trying to make here is that when we come to the text, we do so with a lens. And it's one of like modern, post-enlightenment, scientific method. You guys remember science class? Do you remember that? When you'd like test everything, and if you could observe it and smell it and taste it and touch it and feel it and write it all down, and you could repeat the process, then you might say something that's true about whatever it is you're studying. That's how we often come to the text. And we ask the text to say something that it's actually not wanting to say, maybe. Last week I said something about the questions that we ask are really, really important. There was a guy who was asked, like, did the serpent actually speak in Genesis 3? And he answered and said, um, if, we ask the, the que- if we ask the wrong question of the scripture, then we will get the wrong answers, and then we should not blame the scripture but our questions. The point being, the questions that we ask when we come to the text are so absolutely critical And I want to suggest that often we're asking questions that the scriptures are not intending to answer. For example, Genesis chapter 1. Whoever wrote Genesis had no intention to talk about how or how long it took God to make the earth, whether it was seven days or a million years. 
it's not even on the radar of the person who's writing. Do you see? Like we read it from this way back and we're asking all these scientific questions of it, but for the person who wrote it first, not of interest to them. More like how does this God is different than the rest of these other gods around it and the other stories about this God. So if this story is not about God being the one who calms the storms or the, you know, the seas and the storms of our lives, then what is Mark actually doing? And I want to set this up by asking two questions. One, what is Mark telling us about Jesus? And two, what is Mark telling us about humanity? Or maybe Israel and then humanity? Um, and I would, let's, so let's start with the first one. What's Mark trying to tell us about Jesus? Because remember what we talked about last week, Mark chapter 1. Mark sets Jesus up in a particular way and wants to communicate something very specific about him. So what's he trying to tell us? Um, I would start by saying it's an invitation to cross over. Now, this is where it gets really fun. I love this stuff. So the Bible was written in Hebrew and in Greek, okay? The Israelite people are also known as the Hebrews. So the Hebrew people, these are God's people. The word Hebrew in Hebrew actually means one who crosses over or to cross over. So intimately connected to what it means to be the people of God is this idea of crossing over. Now, if you take that lens and you start reading the Old Testament scriptures, you begin to find all kinds of places where the authors set you up or they put Israel or the people of God on a precipice. You could call it a threshold moment. I had this great fear that when I got married, I would you know, carry my life across the threshold and I'd bang her head against the doors I walked in. Don't worry, it went better than that. But these threshold kinds of moments, right, where it's like if on this side of the doorway, it is massive change or a big difference if you cross this thing. The, 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 story, or the, the writers of the Bible set it up often like this. Think of Jacob, the story of Jacob. Jacob's name means heel or deceiver. He deceives his brother Esau. He steals his birthright. He flees. He goes to his uncle's house. He marries these two gals, uh, Rachel and Leah. They have a bunch of kids. And he's on his way back to meet his father, or, or to meet Esau for the first time. It says, the text says that he comes to the, the, the edge of the Jabbok River and he stops and he sends over his wives and his livestock and his children and he remains on the other side. He remains on this side. And what happens that evening? Jacob wrestles with an angel, right? And his name is changed from heel or deceiver to one who wrestles with God and, is, and people and is not overcome. Game changer. And then immediately after he wrestles with God and his name is changed, what does the text tell us that he does? He crosses over. He crosses the river. We find the Israelites in the story of the Exodus at the, at the, at the edge of the Red Sea and God says, stop and camp here in the most exposed place possible. There's a, uh, if you do the actual um, ge- you know, like geography of it, there's a high place up here. It's an it's a army base or a, a lookout. God tells the people to, to stop right below it in the most exposed place possible between an army base and the Red Sea. And then what happens next? God parts the Red Sea and the Israelites cross over and become the people of God in the land, or on their way to the land, I should say. Think of uh, uh, the Israelites on their way to the, to the land, right? They stop and there's this precipice thresh- threshold moment where they're about to enter the land. Over and over and over again, we find this. Remember what Mark's doing. He's already told us in chapter 1 that Jesus is this redefinition of who Israel is, right? Jesus takes Israel's vocation and their, their essence, who they were supposed to be, on himself. And any, does anybody remember how many disciples Jesus calls? Not a trick question. Come on! Twelve, thank you. It's not a trick question. Yeah, he calls twelve. Does anybody remember how many buckets were left over after the loaves and the fishes? 
12. Mark is like, hey, listen up. He's got Israel and Jesus connected at the hip all, all the time. So I don't think it's a mistake that Mark has Jesus saying to the disciples, cross over to the other side of the lake with me. The invitation of the Gospels that Mark is providing and that Jesus is offering again and again to the people that he's asking him to follow him is, cross over. Cross over. And in doing so, opt in to what God is doing in and through Jesus. Opt in to this new humanity, this new creation, this new Israel, this new exodus that Jesus is at the center of. Cross over. I think he's at least saying that. I would say he's also saying Jesus, he sets up Jesus as one who is over or is above or who controls the sea. S-E-A, the sea. In the ancient Near East where the Bible was written at this time and prior to, in all kinds of literature that you will find, not only in the Bible but also elsewhere, the sea is a metaphor for that which is evil and chaotic. Turn to Genesis chapter 1 if you would. Genesis 1. I said to the first hour, I wish that the little phones had clickers so I knew what was happening. Often I say, turn to da 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 It's crickets. At which point I could say, you know, pull out the old, I can't believe nobody brings a Bible to church anymore. What in the world? <laughs> or I could just invent an app that has a clicker for the Bible pages so it sounds like you're all moving your pages. <laughs> no? That wouldn't work. Okay. Josh has got an idea. He wants to take the Shark Tank. I'm like, that one could go to Shark Tank. It could be. Okay, Genesis chapter 1. The first words of the scriptures. Okay, this is chapter numero uno. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was where? Hovering over the waters. Remember, if in ancient Near Eastern literature, waters and sea is a picture or a symbol of that which is evil and chaotic, what the... And this is why this story is so fascinating because over and against all the other, the other creation myths of its time, this one says that Yahweh is over and above and has mastery. And not only is over and above and has mastery over the chaotic waters, but actually begins to create something beautiful and orderly out of it. Now turn to Gen uh, Revelation chapter 21. The first words of the scripture and the last words of the scripture. Genesis, or I'm sorry, Revelation 21. Almost the last chapter of the Bible, first verse of chapter 21 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Genesis 1, okay? Pay attention. The first earth and the first heaven had passed away and there was no longer what? Ding, ding, ding. What do we have for the winner? The sea is that which is evil, chaotic. And Jesus... If this revelation is a picture of the kingdom come, the, the, where Jesus is on the throne and God is, is in control again, as in Genesis 1, God has mastery over the evil and the chaos and actually creates order and beauty out of it. And in Revelation chapter 21, we find Jesus who brings about the, or, or brings back what has already been in the beginning. What Mark is doing, I would argue, is essentially saying Jesus is the one who is Lord, not only because the first four chapters of Mark, Jesus is a healer. He's like, uh, he does physical healings. He does sickness. He does death. He does demons. He does things with the, the earth. And, and, and now Mark sets him up as the Lord over all of creation. 
Remember in, in the Roman Empire, when the, 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 the Caesar, when they conquered new lands, they would send out the good news from the empire, the Evangelion from the empire. And it was essentially that Caesar is Lord. And if you bow a knee and pay attention to and give homage to and service to and taxes to Caesar, then you get all that as Caesar's. You get all of the benefits of Caesar. What Mark is saying and what Paul says explicitly later in the epistles is that it's not Caesar that's Lord, but it's Jesus that's Lord. And he's one who's the Lord over the sea. Now, I won't spend a lot of time on this one, but I think if you, if you read this story in Mark's Gospel in, and you're not paying attention, you can miss this. But if you are paying attention like one small little bit, I think, th- let me ask it in a question form. Does this story remind you of any other Old Testament story with a prophet of God? Hint. Thank you. Who said it? Jonah. I was going to say there's a fish involved. Jonah, right? This is the story of Jonah replayed. Guys, this is awesome. So Jesus gets baptized by John in the Jordan River. And immediately, where does he go? Into the desert, right? We talked about this last week. Reenacting Israel's history. He does Israel over and he gets it right. What John, or what Mark is saying is essentially, hey, do you remember Jonah? Ha! Do you remember what the people of God are supposed to be about? Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to the world. Why does Jonah get swallowed by the fish? Because he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. What is Nineveh? It's not Jewish. It's not Israelite. Jonah is essentially standing over and against the very purpose that God has created Israel for. He's saying, I don't want any part of it. And God's like, well, fine, I'm going to swallow you by a fish, dog. So does it make any sense that Mark would say, hey, do you remember the story of Jonah? Do you remember why Jonah was swallowed by a fish? Because he didn't do what God asked him to do or didn't live into what Israel was supposed to be about, the care of, the love of, the bringing in of the nations. Now, what does Jesus do? He reenacts it and he gets it right. Again. I mean, the similarities in the story are eerie. A boat captain calls to the person who's on the ship, uh, the... uh, uh, where is this? I've got it in here somewhere. Uh, I, careful, we've got fire. Jonah's in the bow of the ship hiding. Jesus is in plain sight. He's like sleeping on the, on the, on the cushion in the front. They're both charged with not caring about the storm uh, by those in the ship. One prophet's encouraged to pray. One prophet speaks. Uh, in both, the, the action of the prophet changes the outcome of the storm. I mean, it's like, hey, hello. Anybody ever heard of Jonah? Here's the deal. What Jesus is, or what Mark is saying about Jesus is crossover. An invitation to be a part of what God is doing in this new thing through Jesus. An invitation to um, pay attention to what's happening in and through Jesus. What was number two? <laughs> Jesus, he was one who, as one who controls the sea. Yeah, that's, a, that's there. And then God behind Jonah. Okay, you, are, you, are you tracking so far? Okay, good. Let's move on. Let me wrap this up here. Uh, what is Mark saying about Israel? What's Mark saying about humanity? And if I, if I could, just for a moment, I'm going to change hats here. If I, if I was a theology nerd, uh, let me just try to be a pastor here for a moment. Does anybody ever feel inadequate? I heard no whispered down here from the front. Liar! <laughs> Does anybody ever feel like, they, like somebody else's spirituality is what, yours ought to be like they hear from God and for me it's like crickets this person just like they have a gift of prayer and like things happen when they pray or 
I, I wish that I was more, you know, had my, I wish I was more together like that person was or that la da da da. I don't know about you, but I can, I could go on and on and on and on about the times where I have missed out on what God is doing in the present. And I have just totally dropped it. Like missed out on it. And the moment passes by without me ever engaging in it. And this is the invitation of God every moment of our lives. To be in communion with, in relationship to, living from this source. And sometimes I'm just grateful for the disciples because they... (laughs) Jesus is like in the boat with them. Right? He calms the storm. They're about to die and then this flat and he's like, do you still not have any faith? And what do they say? They were terrified. They are, oh, the, the door, like, do you remember, um, um, like, the old, you'd open the car and it was like, the door is ajar. Do you remember that? I don't know what, what I saw that in or what that was from. But, like, the door is open here. Like, Jesus is standing right in front of them and presented to them and the opportunity to step into that. And they miss it. If you follow the, the story of the Acts of the Apostles later, you find that again and again and again, the, sto- the, the apostles are behind the Spirit. They miss it. They don't see it. The whole Acts chapter 15, the Council of Jerusalem, like the Spirit is doing crazy things, and they're like, are you sure these guys, they should be circumcised? I don't know if we should let them in or not. <laughs> of course they shouldn't be circumcised. Come on! Everybody knows that. I think we... I find myself here often where I just miss it where God's up to something and I don't see it and it reminds me uh, or I'm reminded of the fact that this is not a destination that you arrive at but it is a journey that you are invited to go on I think when we think about theology, and and if I'm being honest about kind of our tradition, my tradition, evangelicalism, um, it's one where like we build the house, you know, out of the solid rocks of the theological ideas, and then we live in it. It just doesn't work. (laughs) Because life doesn't work that way. How many of you believed exactly what you believed about God? Think 10 years back. And how many of you believe exactly the same things that you did then, right now? Nobody, right? I would hope that you didn't, and I'd hope that you don't, because if you did, you would have had no new, no experiences about God where you've learned anything that you didn't know before. That's what this thing called faith is about. It's not like you get it all together, and you lock it down, and then you seal it up and put it in a box, and you're like, yes, I've got it! No, it's this invitation and sometimes you're going to get it and sometimes you won't. I'm hoping that as we mature and as we grow in faith as people who follow Jesus, our ability to hear God's voice and know God's presence and when God's up to something would grow and our ability to step into that would grow. But that's what community's for. That's why we do this together. That's why Eric's story about being in a life group is, I would argue, so vitally important. Because there are going to be times when you miss it. You drop the ball. In fact, why don't we just have some, let's have some confession time here. I'm going to ask a couple of you to come. Just kidding. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> the oxygen was sucked out of the room in that moment. Right? But we've all got our stories where we drop it, don't we? And where we miss it. Where we do something dumb and we regret it. I want to invite you into 
a journey of faith. Not a journey of certainty. I'm going to talk about this next week at Easter, ironically enough. A journey that requires faith. Where we, at some point, there is a gap between what we see and experience and empirically can prove and what we believe to be true about the world and what God has done. That is where faith lives. And that's the invitation. It's, it's interesting. The disciples miss it over and over and over again. And yet at the end of their lives, every single one of them dies for what they believe about Jesus. They're all martyred. And so the question for them is, with Mark, Jesus is standing right there in front of them and says, do you not see me? Do you not have faith? And the question that sort of hangs in the balance is, what will they do with Jesus? And is that not the same question for us today? What will we do with this Jesus? Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.